Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 40 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Fatima. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1917, three small children from Fatima, Portugal, reported that the Virgin Mary had begun appearing to them. She appeared every month on the 13th of the month, And in just a few days, as we release this episode, we'll mark the 102nd anniversary of that first event. In July of 1917, she told the children a three-part secret, which they were not allowed to disclose at first, and she also promised to perform a great miracle at her October appearance. So on October 13th, thousands of people gathered there in Fatima and saw the sun do strange things in the sky, an event now called the Miracle of the Sun. And all of this is what we'll be talking about today on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, before we get into things, I understand we need to issue a couple of disclaimers. So uh, what are they? Well, the first one, and this kind of happens with some of our episodes because we try to keep them reasonably length of, of reasonable length, is we won't be able to cover everything. There's just too much detail. A lot is known about the Fatima apparitions. And in fact, I'm going to be recommending a book that's like a documentary history of them that is, it's, you know, hundreds of pages long. It's, you can read the documents for yourself. It's amazing. It's a really great resource, but there's so much detail. We can't go into everything. And in particular, we're unfortunately not going to be able to talk about the third part of the secret or the third secret of Fatima, as it's often called. I originally planned to do that in this episode, but as the outline got lengthier and lengthier, I realized this is going to take it. It's just too much. We're, it, so what we're going to do, it, the episode would be fantastically long if we talked about the third secret and all of the theories connected with it. So what we're going to do since uh, May is the anniversary of the first appearance of Our Lady of Fatima and October is the anniversary of the appearance of our La- our lady's last appearance at Fatima. We're going to talk about apparitions themselves and the first two parts of the secret today. And then to celebrate the October anniversary, we're going to talk in October about the third secret and all of the theories connected with it. Uh, yeah, because we would be here for like three hours <laughs> talking yeah. about this otherwise. So uh, th- 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 I think we'll, we'll all appreciate that then. So let's get into the theories. We'll just dive right in. There are various claims about the apparitions of Fatima. So what are some of the major ones? Most of the theories, as I said, concern the third secret. So when we just take a step back and look at the apparitions themselves, there are basically four theories. The first is that there is a natural and prosaic explanation for what happened. And this is basically the skeptical view that there really weren't any apparitions. Um, Then... You can there's a second which would say, well, no, there's a natural explanation here, but it's more exotic than that. And so some people, believe it or not, have actually claimed that aliens were involved because it's always aliens. And I can remember reading books about UFOs in the 1970s where people were talking about how 
appearances of the Virgin Mary might be explained by UFOs, and they would even refer to these BVM encounters for Blessed Virgin Mary. That is a theory that's out there. Then there's another theory that you get in some circles, and this isn't so much common in Protestant circles, in Catholic circles, but you will get it sometimes in Protestant circles, that says there is a supernatural explanation for these events, but it's not a good supernatural explanation. It's demonic. There's a deceptive spirit at work here. And then finally, there is the view that's common in Catholic circles, which is that the apparitions are genuinely supernatural and they are divine. So they are legitimate private revelations that these children receive. All right. So what do we know about this? Who is the the central visionary in these events, the central person receiving the vision? Her name was Lucia dos Santos, and she's sometimes called Sister Lucy or Sister Lucia. She lived from 1907 to, ni- to 2005. She died at age 97. At the time of the apparition, she was a 10-year-old girl. So, you know, she was born in 1907. These happened in 1917. She was 10 years old, and she was working as a shepherd uh, at the time. Her family raised sheep, and so she would care for them. She later became a Dorothean sister in Spain and then a Carmelite nun in Portugal. She continued, to even after 1917, to at least occasionally receive revelations, and she wrote the major documents that deal with them, which we're going to be talking about. Lots of other people wrote documents, too, and they're in that book I'm, I'm going to recommend. But uh, she wrote the major ones dealing with it. And it's primarily through her memoirs that we have the firsthand accounts of exactly what happened. She is now, now that she's passed on, uh, Pope Benedict waived the normal waiting period for her cause for canonization to be considered. And she has now been declared a servant of God, which is the first stage along the way to being canonized as a saint. So who else was involved in these visions? In the very first ones, before Our Lady showed up, there were a couple of other local children who were involved, not the famous ones, uh, just some other local children that happened to be with, with Lucia at the time. But the main Fatima apparitions between May and October of 1917, there were a couple of other children involved who were Lucia's cousins. Uh, Their names were Francisco Marto. He was born in 1908. And his sister, his little sister, Jacinta Marto, who was born in 1910. So he was at the time of the apparitions. He was like nine years old. She was like seven years old. They were also shepherds which is why they were with Lucia when this was happening. And they have now been canonized uh, as saints. They were beatified by John Paul II, and they were canonized in 2017 by Pope Francis. It probably is useful and worthwhile for this to understand what was going on in the world at the time uh, in 1917. Yeah. So the Pope at the time was Benedict XV. And uh, that's significant. It's significant that it was a Benedict rather than a Pius, because one of the revelations deals with Pius XI, who had not yet been elected. World War I was underway. It had started in 1914, and so it was now in its third year. Also, the Russian Revolution was taking place. And the Russian Revolution was actually two major events in March of 1917, so two months before Our Lady appeared. The so-called February Revolution occurred in Russia, and Tsar Nicholas II was forced to abdicate, which led to the Russian parliament known as the Duma to form a provisional Russian government. 
then in November of 1917, the month after the apparitions ended, the so-called October Revolution occurred, and that's the one that put the communists in charge. You may notice that the February Revolution occurred in March and the October Revolution occurred in November. The reason for that is at the time, Russia was still using the Julian calendar, which is was by this point offset from the Gregorian calendar by a, a number of weeks. And so consequently, they were reckoning these things as happening in February and October, where by the Gregorian calendar that we use, they were happening in March and November. That preempts my question I was about to ask you. So yeah. thank you. So what was Sister Lucia's first supernatural experience? It happened a couple of years uh, earlier in 1915. She and a group of other children were praying the rosary. They were out in the fields and they were praying the rosary when they saw a figure in the sky. And according to Sister Lucia's second memoir, she said, we saw a figure poised in the air above the trees. It looked like a statue made of snow, rendered almost transparent by the rays of the sun. And she also wrote that it looked like a person wrapped up in a sheet. So they saw this figure. It vanished when they finished praying. And later, the same thing happened two more times. They saw the same figure. Didn't say anything. Nothing else happened. It just appeared while they were praying. Then what was her first experience with her cousins, Francisco and Jacinta? This happened the year in 1916, so the year before the main apparitions, and they began seeing an angel. It appeared, according to Sister Lucia, as a young man about 14 or 15 years old, whiter than snow, transparent as crystal when the sun shines through it, and of great beauty. The angel identified itself as the angel of peace and also as the guardian angel of Portugal. And Lucia understood it to be the same figure that she and the other children had previously seen. So now it was interacting with them in a, in a more robust fashion. The angel appeared to the children on three occasions. It taught them prayers and, that they could say. And during the last appearance, it showed them a host and a chalice that hung miraculously in the air and it gave them Holy Communion. Then when did they first see the Virgin Mary? That was on May 13th of 1917. They were out tending the sheep, and they saw two flashes of what they thought was lightning. Uh, they then saw a beautiful woman in a hemlock tree in a field, local field, known in that area as the Cova de Iria. And according to Lucia's fourth memoir, she says, We beheld a lady dressed all in white. She was more brilliant than the sun and radiated a light more clear and intense than a crystal glass filled with sparkling water when the rays of the burning sun shine through it. So very amazing display of, of glory. When they asked where she was from, the lady replied, I am from heaven. She did not at this time identify herself as the Virgin Mary. She just said, I'm from heaven. She requested that the children return to this spot once a month for six months. And she also told the children that uh, they would go to heaven. And she asked if they were willing to offer themselves to God and bear the sufferings he would send them in reparation for sin and for the conversion of sinners. So she's laying out a mission for them. And are you willing to do this? And they said, yes, they were. She also told them, pray the rosary every day in order to obtain peace for the world and the end of the war. 
So they're praying for peace and the end of World War One. Right. That was in May. What happened in June? In June, Lucia asked her, made a request of the lady to take the three children to heaven, which she'd said she would do. But it's like, will you, I, I guess maybe will you take us now? The lady replied, I will take Jacinta and Francisco soon, but you are to stay here some time longer. Jesus wishes to make use of you to make me known and loved. He wants to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart. So, so indeed, according to the lady, Francisco and Jacinta are going to go to heaven soon, but Lucia is going to remain on earth because she's got a special mission that Jesus wants her to perform. And she did until 2005. Right. Then what happened in July? The lady appeared again and promised that in October she would reveal who she was, so she's actually going to name herself, and she'll perform a miracle for everyone to see and to believe. So she's going to demonstrate, you know, she's real in a way that other people have access to. She also revealed a three-part secret to the children, but it was not revealed until much later and only in stages. Then at the event in August, what happened? Well, this month was kind of unusual because the apparitions, I mean, there had already been gr crowds of people gathering. People were really curious about all this. They really wanted to encounter Our Lady. They were giving Lucia and the other children requests, like, will you ask Our Lady to pray for this or heal this person and stuff? And so this caused a big ruckus, and not everybody was favorable to this. In fact, Lucia's own family was not on board with all of this, and neither were some of the local officials. So in August, the children were actually arrested by the authorities in the area, and they were in jail on August 13th, and they could not go to the COVID area, to the field. Nevertheless, other people did go as pilgrims, and some of them reported seeing strange phenomena, including seeing a blue and white cloud that descended and then reascended back up. Uh, some of them reported uh, lightning, which, you know, was the what the children saw when Our Lady would appear. And some of them reported seeing the Virgin Mary. A few days later, after the children were let out of jail, though, they did see a vision of Our Lady. So like this was delayed because they had been in jail. All right. Then what happened at the September event? This month, the lady promised that in October, not only would she appear, but also St. Joseph would appear and the child and he would appear with the child Jesus to bless the world. So it's going to be more than just Mary in October. So then October comes around and we have the final apparition. What happened there? The lady indicated that a chapel was to be built on the spot. Uh, she identified herself as the Lady of the Rosary. So finally says says it out right. Uh, and she asked, as she had before, for the children to pray the rosary every day. She also said the war is going to end and the soldiers will soon return to their home and homes. And there were, you know, Portuguese soldiers who had gone off to fight in the war at this point. According to Lucia, the lady opened her hands and made them reflect on the sun. And as she ascended, the reflection of her own light continued to be projected on the sun itself. Lucia then called for the people to look at the sun, and the event known as the miracle of the sun occurred. Although not everybody claimed to see the phenomenon, numerous individuals reported that the sun appeared to change colors, 
spin and dance in the sky. This was reportedly seen by individuals as far as 25 miles away. In the wake of this event, the children reported seeing additional visions, I mean, that same day at that moment. But after the miracle of the sun, the children reported seeing St. Joseph and the child Jesus and also Our Lady in various forms, including as she was depicted, you know, in religious art as Our Lady of Dolors or Our Lady, Our Lady of Sorrows and also Our Lady of Carmel. And so that was the final apparition. And then the next month, the second Russian Revolution occurred, putting the communists in power, which will become significant for reasons we will see. So then the final apparitions occurred. What what happened to the children after the apparitions? In 1918, the Spanish flu pandemic broke out. And this is something a lot of people don't remember today, but it was in recorded history. Maybe I can't say that, but in recent history, it's the worst outbreak of a pandemic we've had. It, it was terrible. It got started, actually, I think during 1917, but it really got big in 1918 as the soldiers started coming home from different places. And it infected half a billion people. And at the time, there were only like 1.6 billion people on Earth. And so like 30% of everyone alive wow. gets the Spanish flu. And it killed between 50 and 100 million people. So between 3% and 6% of the global population died. It was very intense, unstoppable, dramatic. It was awful. And the prophecy about Francisco and Jacinta going to heaven soon was fulfilled. Francisco died of the Spanish flu in 1919 at age 10, and Jacinta died in 1920 at age 9. In 1921, the first mass was celebrated at the Chapel of the Apparitions, which had been built in Cova de Iria. Also in 1921, Lucia was uh, 14 years old, and she, she joined the Sisters of St. Dorothy in Spain, and she eventually became part of the Order's convent in Tui Pontevedra in Spain. Tui is like the local place, and Pontevedra is the region in Spain. She remained there for some time, but in 1948, she received permission to become a Carmelite, and she entered the Carmelite convent in Coimbra, Portugal. So she moved back to her homeland of Portugal. And did Sister Lucia ever have any other messages from heaven after October 1917? She did. These occurred, at least the ones we know about, occurred when she was at the convent in Pontevedra, and so consequently, they're sometimes called the Pontevedra apparitions. In 1925, Mary appeared with the child Jesus by her side and requested what's now called the First Saturday Devotion. And according to Sister Lucia, Our Lady said the following, All those who, during five months, on the first Saturday, go to confession, receive communion, say a rosary, and keep me company for 15 minutes, meditating on the 15 mysteries of the rosary, for the intention of making reparation to me, I promise to assist them at the hour of death with all the graces necessary for the salvation of their souls. So you'll still have free will, but according to this, Mary will help you, you know, if you've made this effort to grow closer to God. She'll help you at the time you need it with by making sure she'll intercede for you so you'll have the grace you need. And this actually, this mention of this first Saturday devotion, it actually corresponds to something that Mary had said in the July 1917 secret 
but people didn't know it at the time because the secret had not yet been revealed. So that's the first of the Pontevedra apparitions. In 1926, the child Jesus appeared to Lucia and asked if she had spread the first Saturday devotion. And this was a prompt because Lucia had encountered some difficulties in spreading it. And so this was like, you want to get moving on spreading this apparition. This is why you got left here on Earth. Remember, (laughs) Jesus came and said, have you done your homework? (laughs) Yeah. In 1929, the Virgin Mary appeared again and asked for Russia to. And so by now, the October Revolution has occurred. The communists are in power. They've been in power for 12 years or so. So Mary appears and asks for Russia to be consecrated to her Immaculate Heart by the Pope in union with all the bishops of the world. And that is a key phrase that is going to come back for us. And she promised by this means to prevent the spreading of its errors and to bring about its conversion. This also corresponded to something Mary had said in The Secret, but again, people didn't know it because The Secret hadn't yet been revealed. What is the the Catholic Church had to say about these apparitions, reportedly of the Virgin Mary and, and others? In 1930, the local bishop of Liria, Portugal, approved the original 1917 apparitions as worthy of credence. And this is the normal procedure. It's normally not up to the Vatican. I mean, the Vatican may give background advice and counsel, but it's normally up to the local bishop to evaluate reports of private revelations in his diocese. And so he did. He looked into it. He uh, had this investigated, and he concluded that they were worthy of credence. Later on, popes would also treat these apparitions as authentic as well. But it's really the bishop's decision that's the the key legal finding on the part of the church. So what, what did, when he says it's worthy of credence, what does worthy of credence mean? Does does every Catholic have to know except the these apparitions? No. One of the distinctions that Catholic theology draws is between what's called public revelation and private revelation. Public revelation is like what we find in sacred scripture and sacred tradition. It's given as binding on everybody. That's why it's called public. Private revelations are directed to individuals. They may have broader implications, but they're given to individuals in a way that's not binding on everybody. So when a bishop finds that something is worthy of belief or worthy of credence, we're not talking about you have to believe this as a matter of faith. This is not divine faith. This is a practical judgment that this seems to be supernatural and of God. And so we've got evidence that it is both of those things. So you're cleared to believe it, but you don't have to believe it because it's not public revelation. It's not like the Bible. I've heard it said that public revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. Is that correct? It's with the close of the apostolic age, commonly understood to be the death of the last apostle. Yes. So then in July of 1917, Mary gave the children this three-part secret. We, you've mentioned a couple of times. How did it become known, the this secret? Between 1935 and 1941, uh, as part, uh, this was actually after the finding of the bishop, but there were ongoing discussions and investigations. And Sister Lucia was asked to write a series of four memoirs about the apparitions and about her cousins, because they had passed on by now. There weren't a lot of, you know, there were children when they passed. And so there weren't a lot of people at this point who 
who knew them well and remembered them and knew what was all happening at the time of the apparitions. So Sister Lucia wrote this series of memoirs to talk about her cousins and about what happened. And in the third memoir, she revealed the first two parts of the secret that they'd been given on July 13th, 1917, but she did not reveal the third part. So what was the first part of the secret that, that was revealed? Okay, so I'll just quote from the third memoir. Our Lady showed us a great sea of fire, which seemed to be under the earth. Plunged in this fire were demons and souls in human form, like transparent burning embers, all blackened or burnished bronze, floating about in the conflagration, now raised into the air by the flames, which issued from within themselves together with great clouds of smoke, now falling back on every side like sparks in a huge fire, without weight or equilibrium, and amid shrieks and groans of pain and despair, which horrified us and made us tremble with fear. The demons could be distinguished by their terrifying and repellent likeness to frightful and unknown animals, all black and transparent. The vision lasted but an instant. How can we ever be grateful enough to our dear Heavenly Mother who had already prepared us by promising us in the first apparition to take us to heaven? Otherwise, I think we would have died of fear and terror. So the first part of the secret was a vision of hell. Wow. And to think that these were little kids at the time, I'm just imagining my own children seeing that, uh, yeah, that promise of heaven would be, would be a key part of yeah. <laughs> preparing them. All right. right. So, so the vision of hell was the first part. What was the second part of the secret? Again, according to the third memoir, we then looked up at Our Lady, who, who said to us so kindly and so sadly, you have seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go. To save them, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart. If what I say to you is done, many souls will be saved and there will be peace. The war, so this is World War I, the war is going to end. But if people do not cease offending God, a worse one will break out during the pontificate of Pius XI, who you'll remember has not been elected yet. This was Benedict XV's reign. When you see a knight illumined by an unknown light, know that this is the great sign given to you by God that he is about to punish the world for its crimes by means of war, famine, and persecutions of the church and of the Holy Father. To prevent this, I shall come to ask for the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart and the, the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. So these are the two things that are mentioned in the Pontevedra apparitions that she later came to request. If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors through the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be martyred. The Holy Father will have much to suffer. Various nations will be annihilated. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me, and she will be converted, and a period of peace will be granted to the world. So that's the first two parts of the secret. First is the vision of hell. The second is about the establishment of the devotions and how another worse war is going to break out, but it'll be presaged if people don't repent, but it'll be presaged by this sign of unknown light at nighttime. You can put off the the answer to this, uh, but I have a, mm -hmm. a a question on your opinion. Why you why do you think 
these were kept secret at the time and not revealed right away, but were to be revealed later. She, and we'll talk about this more, especially when we talk about the third secret, but Mary told them not to tell anybody. And so initially, this was like just for them. And in fact, when you read the earlier memoirs, she'll, Lucia, like you read the second memoir, I believe, Lucia will say, and then Mary said some words just for us. And then this happened. And this other thing happened. And so she she mentioned that there was something there. But because Mary had said, don't tell anybody, she didn't feel at liberty to disclose it. And it was like, this is just for you. And then she, it, it, the request was specifically made, tell us about this stuff. And she felt she could talk about the first two parts, but not yet about the third. So that in that second part of that secret, Mary predicted that World War One would end, which it did. Yep. But that another would break out if people didn't repent, uh, which there was another world war. But so what can you tell yep. us about that? And it was worse. Yeah. Yeah. So she had said it would happen in the reign of Pius XI, and he was not elected until 1922. He was the successor of Benedict XV. The sign that was to come before this war, which again was because this was just for you, this is like a sign to Sister Lucia specifically, was to be a night illumined by an unknown light. And on the night of January 25th to 26th, 1938, in the reign of Pius XI, there was an extraordinary display of the Aurora Borealis that was widely visible in Europe, so much further south than normal. It occurred shortly before Hitler annexed Austria to Germany, the Anschluss. Um, in her third memoir, Sister Lucia interpreted this as the sign, indicating that the new war was close. And she speculates that it may not have actually been the Aurora Borealis. It may have been something even more directly a miracle than just an unusual display. Either way, she saw this unknown light and said that the war is coming. And indeed, World War II broke out the next year. And you mentioned in the third about the third secret that she didn't write it. Why didn't Sister Lucia write down the third part of the secret? She didn't feel that she yet had permission from heaven to do so. And there's kind of a conflict between her. She had a religious vow of obedience. So if she was told, disclose what you the secret, she would feel obliged to do it. But she also felt like she needed permission from heaven. And she didn't feel she had that for the third part of the secret yet. If you want to, I know we keep referring to it. If you want to read about it, we'll have stuff in the show notes. So you can, you don't have to wait till October, but we will be doing the. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World full treatment of the third secret and the theories about it then. So that's the background here. Uh, let's approach this from the reason perspective in these various theories about what happened at Fatima. What evidence is there that Our Lady of Fatima could be explained by aliens? Uh, not so much. I mean, you can always say aliens with advanced technology did anything you want. There are no limits to what you can explain by that. The question is, what evidence do you have? And we don't have any evidence of alien involvement here. So the, the you go, with, go with the obvious explanation until you get evidence to the contrary. This phenomenon presented itself as supernatural, not extraterrestrial. Therefore, that should be our operating theory. Now, there's also another natural uh, theory, explanation theory, that the skeptical hypothesis says there wasn't any apparition at all. 
So what are the skeptical arguments? Let's get you know, very specific about this miracle of the sun. Like how how could they explain that away then? Okay, so the first thing about the miracle of the sun is a skeptic will say, well, look, come on, the sun couldn't literally dance and throw off massive solar flares without killing everyone on Earth. You know, if it moved around off the very center of the solar system, the orbits of the planets would be totally disrupted and 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 it would just be a world humanity is destroying cataclysm. And that obviously didn't happen. They would also say if the sun literally did those things, everyone on Earth would see it, not just people in in Fatima and the surrounding area. It would be everyone on Earth would notice suddenly the sun is not where it's supposed to be in the sky. And that also didn't happen. The fact that some people didn't report seeing it, even in Fatima didn't report seeing it, they would say indicates this is a non-objective phenomenon. A skeptic would also say you can explain what people did see as a product of people staring at the sun with unprotected eyes, you know, like they saw it change color. Okay, after images caused by solar retinopathy from looking at the sun without, you know, protective glasses, rainbow phenomena were seen as part of the miracle of the sun. Well, it had just there just been a thunderstorm and then the clouds parted and they looked at the sun and they saw weird stuff, including rainbows. Also, you these skeptical say these people were pilgrims. They were in a highly they were in a state where they were highly motivated to see something miraculous and to be able to to say, yes, I saw the miracle of the sun, even if they had to kind of talk themselves into it. So it's a product of wishful thinking and a desire and a desire to kind of go along with what everyone else is saying. So those would be arguments that a skeptic would use about the miracle of the sun. And then the arguments to counter what the skeptics would say would be what? The claim is not that the sun literally moved around in the solar system or shot off massive solar flares. That's not what that's a straw man. That is that is not what advocates of the miracle claim literally happened. This was a local manifestation that either involved a supernatural effect on people's perception or a supernatural effect on the sun's light as it's shown in this area, or maybe both. But it's not like the sun literally moved and danced. This is this is a something either in people's perception or in the this is God's action, either directly on people's perception or on the way the light got to this area that caused this. And people have looked into well, what could cause that? One of them was Father Stanley Yaki, who was a physicist. According to him, this is a quote, a sudden temperature inversion, and you notice there were there was a thunderstorm, so the temperature would have been fluctuating. A sudden temperature inversion must have taken place. The cold and warm air masses could conceivably propel that rotating air lens in an elliptical orbit from toward the Earth and then push it up as if it were a boomerang back to its original position. Meanwhile, the ice crystals in the air in it uh, acted in so many means of refraction for the sun's rays. Only one observer, a lawyer, stated three decades later that the path of descent and ascent was elliptical with small circles superimposed on it. Such an observation would make eminent sense to anyone familiar with fluid dynamics or even with the workings of a boomerang. There is indeed plenty of scientific information on hand to approach the miracle of the sun scientifically. 
the carefully coordinated interplay of so many physical factors would by itself be a miracle, even if one does not wish to see anything more in what actually happened. Clearly, the miracle of the sun was not merely meteorological, was not a mere meteorological phenomenon, however rare. Otherwise, it would have been observed before and after, regardless of the presence of devout crowds or not. I, Father Yaki says, I merely claim, which I did in my other writings on miracles, that in producing miracles, God often makes use of a natural substratum by greatly enhancing its physical components and interactions. So what Father Yaki, again, a physicist, says is this is explainable in physical terms, why people saw it here but not elsewhere, because of a weird set of phenomena that normally do not occur together in the sky, but if they occurred, would explain this. And God then caused that providentially to happen in this place at this time as a sign to these people. Yeah, Father Yaki, I got to say, just as a side, is amazing. And if you had a chance to read any of his books, if you can understand them, because <laughs> yeah, he is a physicist. And he's not the clearest writer, but he is a really smart guy. Another reason to see this as a miracle is it was seen by thousands of people, including people as far as 25 miles away, who were not there in the COVID area to hear Sister Lucia say, everybody look at the sun. So it's they weren't there and they weren't, they didn't hear the direction. Okay, everybody look up now. They just looked up on their own. It's like, what is going on with the sun? So they didn't have the prompting and expectation that the people in COVID area did. Among the people who, who claimed to see the miracle of the sun were skeptics, including journalists and government officials. And even if there are, you know, natural meteorological explanations for what people saw, it doesn't explain why it happened providentially right at this time when it would be taken as a sign and not some other time when nobody would attribute any significance to it other than, wow, that's weird. All right. So then there are the other prophecies. How do skeptics address the prophecy that another war would begin in the reign of Pius XI, a pope who had not been elected yet, as you'd mentioned? And that it would be preceded by a night of unknown light. If I put on my skeptic hat and go after that, I would say this. The second part of the secret was not written until 1941, and that's after World War II had broken out. So this could be an ex post facto prophecy. Predicting a bigger war than the one you've just had is not a huge stretch. So, I mean, anytime you have a war, you can say there's going to be a worse one. The Aurora has a natural explanation. You don't have to see it as a special miracle. It's just weird aurora, unusually big. The name Pius XI was predictable, uh, even though it was Benedict XV who was reigning at the time. There had been a run of popes named Pius recently, and in fact, the children were born in the reign of Pius X. So he was the pope when they were born. They would have heard about Pope Pius X. It's not a stretch to say there's going to be an 11th, especially since it was a popular pope name up until the 1950s, and it's now fallen out of being popular. World War II, you'll notice, also conventionally began, the way it's normally reckoned, in September of 1939. And Pius XI actually died in February of 1939, and Pius XII was elected in March of 1939. And so he would have it, it actually, the skeptic would say, actually, this war began in the reign of Pius the Twelfth, not Pius the Eleventh. 
Oh, all right. So then what are the the contrary arguments to the skeptic? While the individual elements, you know, the bigger war, the reign of Pius XI, the unknown light, you can individually explain those. The conjunction is remarkable. It's harder to explain this conjunction of facts. Also, wars often have rolling starts. So it's not like there's a sudden moment when when World War II began. We conventionally use the invasion of Poland in September of 1939, but there were other things that had been happening that were acts of aggression by Germany and Japan that preceded the invasion of Poland. So uh, it may be a convenient historical marker, but you could argue the war began earlier. Also, and before I, I really discuss that, I want to mention the church does not hold that there can be no unintentional embellishment or accidental slip by a seer in private revelation. It's not inspired the way public revelation is, which means that's part of why you don't have to believe it, because it's not divinely inspired. And so the consciousness of the seer can misunderstand things or get something a little wrong. Um, and, and you know, Mary could have said Pius Twelfth, and they thought she said Pius Eleventh. You know, if you have that Roman numeral in your mind, it's easy to confuse an 11 for a 12. So that's a possibility. But also, it, it as I mentioned, World War II kind of had a rolling start, and it and some of the aggressions were during the reign of Pius XI. Hitler seized control of the Sudetenland from Czechoslovakia in September of 1938, the same year as the as the apparition of the the Aurora, and during the reign of Pius XI. Also, Japan a year earlier, Japan invaded China in 1937 as the start of the Second Sino-Japanese War, which then rolled into World War II. So you already had this stuff going on in the reign of Pius XI that you could say, okay, it started earlier. Also, it's possible that the timetable got adjusted. You'll notice these weren't absolute prophecies. It was a worse war will break out if people don't stop offending God. So there's some flexibility here. And in fact, we will uh, see that the timeline, according to Sister Lucia, the timeline of world, and this will, I guess, really come out in our October episode when we talk about the third secret. But Lu Lucia later said that World War II got shortened because of something Pius XII did. So it's it, you since this, there's flexibility here, it could be, well, the original plan was if people don't repent, then that conflict, that conflagration of sin and aggression is going to lead to a new war in the reign of Pius XI. But maybe people offended God a little less. They used their free will and they offended God a little less. And so the war didn't break out until later. So there are several different ways of, of explaining that, whether it's a slip in the consciousness of the seer or an earlier date for the start of the war or a delayed state uh, start for the war because people didn't commit as many sins and aggressions, and so the war didn't break out as a natural result of them. But then there's this. Remember I mentioned that this could be an ex, ex post facto prophecy? Why would you do that if you're—why would you make this mistake about Pius XI 
if you're doing an ex post facto prophecy. If it's 1941 and you're faking this prophecy as Sister Lucia, you would say, oh, and it would begin in the reign of Pius XII. And it did. The fact she says Pius XI, when it's hard from certain points of view to square that, is actually a sign of authenticity that she was not making this up, that that's really something that had been in her consciousness prior to the outbreak of the war. Are there other arguments we should look at to counter the skeptical hypothesis? There are, but they deal with the third part of the secret. Unlike the second part of the secret, the third part was written down before it was fulfilled. So you can't make the ex post facto claim for the third part. Also, unlike the miracle of the sun, the fulfillment of the third part of the secret was witnessed by everybody world over. It was known the world over, and it was not subjective. In the same way as you could say, well, people maybe they got retinopathy looking at the sun and kind of talked themselves into it. No, this was unmistakable. So for my money, it's really the third part of the secret that's the most convincing proof. I was stunned when it got revealed and it's like, wow, that's what it was. But we'll talk about that more in October. Right. It just as a little bit bit of a preview, the the third secret was revealed within the last uh, 20 years, I think it was. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that's the reason perspective. Now, obviously, there is a massive faith perspective on all of this. So what should we make of the claim that Our Lady of Fatima was the product of demonic activity? This is a claim, as I said, that some people in the Protestant community have made. By no means all Protestants claim this. Some some don't know what to think. Some are skeptical, don't attribute it to demons. They just think it was a little children's imagination. Other people, in the, even in the Protestant community, are open you know, to the idea that Virgin Mary maybe appeared. I don't want to, by no means want to say this is all Protestants, but when you get this demonic view, it tends to be in the Protestant community, but not exclusively so. Prior to church approval, some Catholics suggested this. In fact, Lucia's own priest suggested it to her as a possibility while the apparitions were going on. How do you know this is really the Virgin Mary? Maybe it's the devil tricking you. And Lucia got rattled by that. For a time, she was unsure. Is this Mary who I've seen? And she almost did not go to the July apparition as a result of her doubts where the secret was revealed. So can't just dismiss it. The devil can, as the New Testament tells us, disguise himself as an angel of light. And he could disguise himself as the Virgin Mary, potentially. The question is, and the test then becomes, is he leading us away from God? Because that's fundamentally what the devil wants to do. Some in the Protestant community will say, yes, that's that's what the evidence is, that this is diabolical. According to the children, the Virgin Mary said things that conflict with Protestant theology or with certain Protestant theologies. So, for example, she said, pray the rosary every day. Well, if you're a Protestant who doesn't think praying the rosary is a good thing, you think it's a bad thing, then you could say, well, that's evidence that the devil was leading the children to pray the rosary, which will lead people away from God. However, from a Catholic perspective, and even, again, many Protestants don't have a problem with praying the rosary, this isn't a problem. 
So that's not really evidence from a Catholic point of view or even from a point of view of many Protestants. And even many Protestants, even if they don't, even if they don't say the rosary themselves, which most don't, some do, but not most, they might say, well, it's a Catholic practice. It's not necessarily the ideal form of spirituality, but it is, you know, a pious practice that people are doing to try to get closer to God. And so it's basically good, even if it's not my thing or the perfect thing. It's really only folks who are hardcore absolutely, you must not pray the rosary that would view this as evidence of the devil. You've got to be pretty opposed to praying the rosary to say this is demonic. Others, and again, this is not all Protestants, but some Protestants will say the age of revelation, even private revelation, has closed. And so any supernatural revelation that comes along after the death of the last apostle must be demonic because God is not sending private revelations or public revelations anymore. The problem is that the Protestant principle of sola scriptura, that you have to prove everything by the Bible only, does not support this claim. There are no verses in Scripture that say all revelation is going to stop, or even public revelation is going to stop with the death of the last apostle. That is a tradition. That is not something you can prove from Scripture. It's occasionally, people will try to cite verses, but they don't work when you, when you really study them. They do not mean what is claimed. In fact, we have just the opposite on record. If you look in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 to 21, St. Paul actually addresses this issue because when prophecies come, some people naturally want to scoff at them. You know, it's like, come on, you're my fellow Christian. You know, why should I think God's talking to you? And so in his letter to the Thessalonians, his first letter, St. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophesying. So if you despise prophesying, you're quenching the work of the spirit. But test everything and hold fast to what is good. So this is standing command of the New Testament. Do not despise do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophesying, test everything, and hold fast to what's good. So you're not to reject prophecies out of hand, you are to thoughtfully consider them, and if there's evidence supporting the prophecy, you need to take it seriously. So uh, this apparition at Fatima is supported by evidence that points to its being supernatural, and it is fundamentally meant to lead people to repent that's its central message. I mean, the first part of the secret is hell. It is meant to lead people to repent and to turn to God and to Jesus and to pray and, and you know, promote peace and things like that. This is a fundamentally positive message. And thus, from a Catholic perspective, it's fundamentally credible, both as being supernatural and as being of God. So is, is that your bottom line, Jimmy, on this, Fatima? From a Catholic perspective, the apparition is worthy of credence. You don't have to believe it, but in my estimation and in the estimation of the competent church authorities, it is worthy of belief. And we, whether you buy it or not, though, we do need to take its central message seriously and repent. All right. So what, what are the further resources? You've mentioned a couple already, but what are the further resources folks can look at to, to find out more about Fatima? I wrote an article called Getting Fatima Right. It's at jimmyakin.com. We'll have a link to that. I'll have links to a couple of books of Sister Lucia's memoirs. They're, they're called uh, Fatima in Lucia's Own Words, 
volume one and volume two. But really, and they're available, you can get those on Kindle. But the real book that you want to get if you really want to deep dive into this is called Documents on Fatima. It's by Martins and, and Father uh, Fox, and it is an anthology. It, uh, it It's huge. It's really thick. It has all of these documents, including Sister Lucia's memoirs, but all of these letters going back and forth between theologians and bishops and stuff that really is a documentary history of everything up until the release of The Third Secret. And it even talks a little bit about the release of The Third part of the secret. So that's a really good book. There's also a scholarly study of Marian apparitions by Sandra Zimdars Schwartz called Encountering Mary. That's quite good. It, it, it covers more than just Fatima. It also covers Lourdes and La Salette and Medjugorje, the claimed apparitions of Medjugorje. So it's a, it's a quite well done objective study of these, of these events. I also have a piece called Nine Things to Know and Share About Fatima. We'll have uh, Wikipedia's articles on Fatima and on the Miracle of the Sun, and also a link to Father Stanley Yaki on the Miracle of the Sun. That's all very good. Jimmy, do you have an opinion on the Fatima movie, the old one, uh, just as a, not just as a piece of art, but also just as something to understand? I, to to be honest, I haven't seen that movie. I've seen okay. like the, the song of Bernadette, which I watched with my wife, but I haven't seen the Fatima movie. Okay, I just I I remember seeing it many years ago, and I was curious. It's an old old movie, and mm -hmm. so so much has happened since that movie was made. I was curious if if you might be have seen it and had an opinion. But that's that's fine. There's a lot of resources right there, the primary yeah. resources which folks can can look at. Excellent. Uh, let's talk about our mysterious feedback. We love to get your feedback, folks, and you send such good feedback in all the different ways. And uh, so this time we have feedback on our Russian woodpecker episode. Yeah, talking about Russia spreading its errors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> spreading its very erroneous radio messages. <laughs> so James Smith writes uh, a comment on YouTube. He says, as an amateur radio operator, the woodpecker did cause a lot of chaos on the lower high frequency bands. In fact, there were external devices that were produced called woodpecker noise blankers and were even incorporated into the transceivers developed in Japan. By the way, there are more ham radio operators today than ever. Cool. Cool. I uh, had not been up on the state of ham radio at present, but it's great to hear. And uh, likewise, Jim uh, on Facebook writes, I loved your podcast on the Russian woodpecker, was involved with it as a ham radio dealer, sold lots of woodpecker noise blankers. Cool. Glad you were able to give people some relief from the uh, incessant 10 hertz pulse. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and a uh, longtime friend of the show, J Jim Gordon uh, from Scotland, uh, writes uh, on Is I believe, Commissioner Commissioner Gordon. I, I don't think he's the commissioner <laughs> in Gotham, but uh, I think it's the same Jim Gordon who's been a longtime listener from from Dundee, Scotland. He said, uh -huh. uh, if it is a, a great day for you, Jim, many thanks for this to you and Dom. I actually listened to this earlier today. Via Tridio, as an old BC band's DXer, I well remember the woodpecker. And he says, here in eastern Scotland, it came in like the proverbial ton of bricks. I used to have an XRAF R1475 communications receiver and used my headphones to listen with. When you hit the woodpecker, you had to remove your headphones. Believe me, the example you used in the podcast was mild by comparison. We didn't want to blow people's ears out. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> a lot of people listen with headphones. And it roamed along the dial. One U.S.-based organization claimed it had an output of 
22 and a half million watts. The usual explanation is that as well as checking for launches, it could also differentiate between different types of aircraft. Interesting. And that goes along with some of the things they said, because they could talk, they talked in the documentary about how they could detect shuttle launches and distinguish them from missile launches. Yeah. And, and that 22 half million watts, to give that some perspective, like the, I, I'm pretty sure that the strongest AM radio broadcasts in the U.S., I think are like 100,000 watts. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, uh, like we have a, so this a, would 10 be, times that. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, and the, those AM broadcasts at night can be heard, you know, across the Eastern U.S., like from Boston, we have one that's that powerful. So that's pretty amazing. And then Brad on Facebook writes, as a radar man and radio operator, my dad picked it up on the way to Antarctica in the 70s on the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Westwind during Operation Deep Freeze. They recorded it, called it in, and sent a copy to Shipping Intelligence in Baltimore. Cool. That's very cool. Good to know they were on top of that. And that was fairly early in the history of the Russian woodpecker. Right. And then, uh, so Jimmy, that's that's our feedback. Do you have some mysterious yeah, headlines for us? I do. So the first one is a link to an article where Cardinal Sarah, he's the head of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, discusses threats facing the church in the 21st century. So the message of Fatima dealt with threats facing the church in the world in the 20th century. And so here's a perspective now that we're in the 21st century of what are what are the threats facing us now from a cardinal who works at the Vatican. Also, speaking of extraterrestrials, since we talked about the UFO hypothesis here, here's one that's a little more real. I've got a link to an article on what's known as the Cash Landrum UFO event, which led to a $20 million lawsuit and how what caused it is still a mystery. This was an event that occurred uh, some years ago, it was either the 70s or the 80s, in Texas. And something really did appear in the sky and injure three people who got what appears to be radiation poisoning. And it led to a lawsuit. It may have been a government thing. It may have been an extraterrestrial thing, but something happened there. And we'll actually, I've been, I've at some point we'll do an episode just on the Cash Landrum UFO event. But until then, you can check out this article that talks about the uh, present status of it. Very good. Uh, and yes, we'll have all of that in our show notes before we sign off. And I want to do this because it's it's so important that we do this with we thank our patrons and you should, as a listener, thank the patrons as well, because without them, you wouldn't have this podcast. This podcast is only possible because of uh, the very generous folks who donate to StarQuest and give us the ability to produce this show, this show, which is reaching bigger audiences every week. I, I hear from new listeners every week who are enjoying what we have to do. And, and it's making a difference. I think people are really yeah. uh, taking the, taking this the stuff we talk about in. And it's, I think it's, I think it, it, it helps people look at the world in a new way, which I think is really nice. Yeah. And please, please share it with your friends. Yes. Yes. And I, I want to talk about that in a second too. But but in my thanking of the patrons, I want to thank this week and we want to every time we want to take a moment to thank some some of you by name. And so this time I want to thank Jimmy D, Lars S, Don H, John G and Edward C. I use initials because I don't know if people want their whole yeah, name out we, there. We, we don't want to violate people's privacy if they would prefer not. But we also want to thank them. Yes. So uh, I want to thank those those folks in particular, but all of you in general. Uh, it's me. Like I said, 
It's their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give that makes it possible for us to continue making Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and in all of the shows that we're doing at StarQuest. And you can see all of those at sqpn.com. And if you want to become one of our patrons and get the, there's, we have some special benefits that we offer to them, um, including the, just the knowledge that they're helping us keep doing this. Uh, you could visit sqpn.com slash give, and you'll see all the information there on how to become one of our patrons. So that's it from us. What did you think about this discussion of Fatima? Do you already did you already know about Fatima or is this news to you? Are you skeptical? Do you do you are you a believer? Whatever whatever you want to approach it. What do you think? Let us know by going to sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page and leave us some feedback there. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. I want to say that slowly because I know I talk fast mysterious at sqpn.com i need to enunciate or you can send a tweet to uh, our twitter account which is at mys underscore world with the hashtag of at mysterious feedback all one word mysterious feedback is all one word and like jimmy said please share the podcast with your friends that's how we're growing is by you sharing this with other people and saying hey this is good and every week so many of you do such a good job of sharing this on Facebook and on Twitter and email and that sort of thing. And another way you can help share it is if you write a review of the podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, whatever directory you're using, they those directories use your reviews as a way to say, hey, this, this podcast is getting, getting a lot of five-star reviews. It must be popular. We should show it to more people. And so the more you do that, the more it helps the community grow. We reach more listeners. It's good for everyone. Five stars, please. Five star, yes, yes. That's the key is the five star uh, review. You can find the links, like we said, to all of these resources that Jimmy has gathered on Fatima and links to these mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious, as well as links to all of our previous shows, the the uh, Mysterious World Bookstore, everything like that can be found at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest.